Number 174 has been selected as a song of encouragement, and at the appropriate time, we'll use that a bit later in the service this evening. As was mentioned earlier, how delightful it is that we've each been given the opportunity and, yea, the grand privilege of assembling this evening. It's so honorable that we have been able to utilize our capability of life in a period of time investing it into worshiping and adoring and honoring the great God of heaven, and as a part of that, to be enriched by a careful consideration of a portion of the wonderful Word of God. Let me again say how thankful that I think we as a congregation can be for those men, all of them who occupy this pulpit on various occasions and use their talents and abilities in a way that pushes forward the appreciation and boundaries of the wonderful work of God. And I know next Sunday that you'll be blessed mightily as Brother Gary will share the evening lesson. And I feel sure that as, you, as we each can appreciate that powerful lesson that's brought, we'll be uplifted and encouraged by the things that he'll have to share with us. At this particular time, we continue a study of the book of 1 Samuel this evening. For some few weeks now, we have been giving our attention to that book along with our youngsters who are preparing for the Bible Bowl. And as much as they study the first 24 chapters of this book, we of course are intending to do the same. To this point, we already have discussed the first 15 chapters and thus well over half of the material that they will be responsible for. It is in that regard that we come this evening to chapters 16 and 17 of the book of 1 Samuel. To highlight, at least in an extremely brief way, we have been introduced to some individuals and they have served as the central ones throughout the book in many ways. We have seen Eli. We have, of course, been introduced to Samuel, his birth, the character of the person he became in strength and defense of the nature of the work of God. We did see, however, also that there was Saul who was anointed as the first king, but that this one who occupied that position failed to do that which was commanded of him, and so, as a result of disobedience, he was rejected. For all those reasons, that was the way that chapter 15 ended. And tonight we take up the next two chapters in this noble historical section of the Old Testament. As we turn our attention to these next two chapters, it would certainly be fair to say that we will find in it our introduction, our first one in the Old Testament really, of that person, that man who would occupy such a central role in the remainder of all the Old Testament and also, of course, by way of comparison for much of the New Testament as well. Because of all of that, as we might well begin in the ways that we have before, utilizing the first section of the lesson this evening to highlight the historical sections of these two chapters and following that to at least choose three things that we might use, lessons, excerpts if you will, that can assist us in serving the Lord even today more acceptably. As chapter 15 closed, we had seen in rather dramatic fashion that God had decreed and declared that Saul I have rejected. Due to his disobedience and his failure to, in fact, take care of the Amalekites as commanded, due to the presumptuousness and, in fact, even stubbornness with which he conducted himself, the God of heaven had declared, He will be rejected and I will select one better than thou. And as that chapter closed, that left us in a position that Saul and Samuel, of course, didn't visit one another anymore. As chapter 16 opens, we immediately find the God of heaven with a word of exhortation to Samuel. Stop mourning for Saul. I have rejected him and prepare yourself to anoint the next king. 
Samuel, it seems, had busied himself in mourning, in despair, in discouragement. But the God of heaven had another work in mind, for the testimony concerning Saul was now finished. God had rejected him, and there would be no changing of that lot. And so in the verses that follow, God ordered Samuel, you go to Bethlehem. The next king is there. At that time, his name wasn't revealed to Samuel, but he knew that he was there and that he was one of the sons of Jesse. And so, as Samuel made preparation for going, one of his initial questions was, Saul will kill me if he learns that I proceed to this place. We immediately learned that this gentleman Saul had become a very strange person in many ways. One who just a few chapters before had very different characteristics was now such that even Samuel worried for his life. However, God told Samuel, you take a heifer with you, and as you do that, prepare for sacrifice. And so indeed he went, and as he came, the preparation for the sacrifice was made, and Jesse and his sons were invited to the sacrifice. We notice that one by one, the sons passed before Samuel starting from the oldest one. The oldest son of Jesse was a gentleman named Eliab. And we notice that Eliab was rather tall. He also was rather handsome. And upon seeing him, Samuel certainly thought, Surely this is the Lord's anointed. Verse 6 of 1 Samuel 16. However, God had a different consideration because, in fact, He immediately informed Samuel, Look not on the outward appearance. The Lord looketh on the heart. That's the text Lucas read just a moment ago. And doesn't it remind us, I have refused him. Eliab was not the one of choice. And thus, the next son, the next oldest named Abinadab was brought before Samuel. And his only response was, the Lord hath not chosen him either. Son number three was then brought before him and his name was Shema. One more time, Samuel's only reply was, the Lord hath not chosen this either. And one by one, all the sons came before him, seven of them at least. And we notice that upon all of them passing before Samuel, the Lord had chosen none of them. At this point, Samuel turning to Jesse said, Are are these all thy children? Jesse was quick to reply, The youngest yet remains. He is not here. He is keeping the sheep. Samuel ordered him brought. Indeed, when this youngest son came... His first recognition, the first description we have of him was he was pleasant to look at. He was also rather young, it seems, and furthermore, he is described as ruddy, a word that has the same derivation as the word red. It would seem that he was described in a way similar to at least portions of what Esau was many, many years earlier. As we consider this young boy whose name was David... Immediately upon seeing him, the God of heaven said to Samuel, Anoint him. He is the next king. We find in the verses that follow that Samuel did exactly what the God of heaven commanded, anointing David. He took that horn of oil and poured it upon David. And then in the verses that follow, just as surely as we see the ascendancy of David, we continue to see the descendancy of Saul. Whereas Saul at one time had enjoyed a powerful spirit of God resting upon him, he had even in fact prophesied several chapters earlier, back in chapter 10. However, now the scene changes dramatically. That spirit of God no longer with him. Rather, 
An evil spirit, as the text calls it, is now found to be in him. This evil spirit, we appreciate that it is described as a distressing spirit. It is described as a kind of spirit that troubled Saul, greatly Saul. That troubling spirit that rested upon Saul, we find that his servants, in fact, gave him some words of advice. In fact, find a harp player, someone skilled in playing the harp, so that when these fits come upon you, that this person can play the harp and thus soothe that troubling spirit. We notice that Saul agreed with that suggestion. He, in fact, ordered that they find a skillful player. And so, word was ultimately brought that there was one of the sons of Jesse who was a very skilled player on the harp. And not only that, his reputation was noble. He was known to be good at speaking. And Saul, in fact, had him brought. He not only was brought, but in fact, he became the armor bearer of Saul. And Saul, in fact, loved him very greatly. As chapter 16 closes, we then seemingly find that this troubling spirit was something that from time to time greatly agitated and bothered Saul. But into chapter 17, then, we're prepared to go. A very lengthy chapter, but it's one of the highlights of the book of 1 Samuel. In fact, if a typical individual were asked about the, this book, likely the scene of chapter 17 would be the one thing of which that person would be aware. What is it that took place in this chapter? Those Philistines of whom we have read so much before, it turns out that as this chapter begins, they and Israel again are preparing for battle. They are opposed to one another. And as the chapter begins, we find the children of Israel encamped at Elah, and we find the Philistines encamped at Shoko, and there is a valley between them. There is a war, a battle soon to take place. However, much to the chagrin of the children of Israel, amongst the Philistines was a champion, a giant from Gath whose name was Goliath. He was a beast of a man, standing approximately nine and a half feet tall. The very armor that he wore weighed approximately 150 pounds. The spear that, in fact, he was able to hold in his hand had a head on it that weighed almost 17 pounds. This was a giant of a man. You can imagine as he stood in the distance amongst the camp of the Philistines and as he made his way outward, the children of Israel were greatly frightened by him. In fact, the text even says in verse 24, they fled from him. They were ready to retreat upon the sight of this one named Goliath. As you read the verses that follow, not only, however, was Goliath large in size, he had some very strong words for the children of Israel. He issued to them a challenge. Send out a man to fight with me. And here is the agreement. If he is able to kill me, then we as the Philistines will be your servants. But on the other hand, if I kill him, then you will be our servants. It was an all or nothing arrangement as far as Goliath was concerned. Needless to say, there was nobody amongst the children of Israel prepared and ready to go out and fight Goliath. This proceeded onward for many, many days. As Goliath came forth each day and issued his challenge, no one amongst the children of Israel, not even Saul, was ready to take up that arrangement. We find, beginning in the 12th and 13th verses, that there was the occasion when David's three oldest brothers were serving 
in the military serving in the army of Saul. And Jesse had the idea to send some supplies to those brothers and also to send a greeting and a word of exhortation to Saul. As he prepared those supplies, he wanted David to take them. As David brought them, that means he came to the place of the battle site. He came to that valley separating the children of Israel and the Philistines themselves. Wouldn't you know it that when he, that when he came... Goliath came out and David heard these words that Goliath shared. He heard these words of belittlement. He heard these words of defilement that Goliath shared toward the children of Israel. The very word that's used more than once in this chapter is Goliath defied the armies of God. That word defy means, of course, to call into question. He had little respect for them. And that was what Goliath did. We notice that upon hearing this, David was somewhat surprised and shocked. He couldn't understand why no one amongst the children of Israel were ready to, in fact, engage Goliath in battle. We notice that one of his questions was, what will be offered to the one who defeats this man? Several amongst the children of Israel said three things Saul has promised to the one who can defeat Goliath. Number one, great riches will be his. Number two, he will be free in all of Israel. And number three, Saul will give him his daughter to wife. David, in fact, asked another person and the answer was the same. In fact, Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard these questions that David asked. And in fact, he rebuked David. He, in fact, stated David needed to go back, take care of the sheep, and stay out of the business. He didn't belong here. However, others brought to Saul the words that David had spoken. Saul, now for the first time, had found somebody who had stated a willingness to defeat and to at least battle against Goliath. Saul had David brought to him. They entered into conversation. David, in fact, shared that I have beaten a lion, I have defeated a bear, all in taking care of the sheep. And the reason why I've enjoyed those victories is because the God of heaven has been with me. David stated a remarkable confidence and assurance in the God of heaven and his willingness to be with the children of Israel. Upon hearing this conversation, Saul became convinced that David should go into battle. However, as he prepared to send him into battle, he also was aware that in size, David was no match for Goliath. Probably standing four feet or so, or so shorter than he, giving up no doubt a couple of hundred pounds at least, if not much more. We do notice beyond all of that, that Saul was intending to make the preparation to allow the circumstances concerning armament for, Saul, for David. Saul was going to find some armor so that David could wear it. However, since David had not been able to prove it, he cast it off from him. And the only things that he took with him to battle Goliath were these. He took his staff, he took his sling, he took the bag in which to place five stones, and that was all that he took. As the time came for this engagement between Goliath and David, we noticed that they proceeded to run toward one another. And there was a bit of language shared between them. Goliath continued to disdain David. 
He despised him. He insulted him. He belittled him. He had no real encouragement in terms of this being even a good battle at all. He said, you are a youth. Goliath, however, was a seasoned and experienced military man. Upon first thought, how would this be any battle at all? It looks so one-sided. It and all the thoughts and all the might with Goliath. As they continued to speak, though, David had some rather remarkable words for Goliath. He stated, it's the God of heaven that you have defied. And let it be known unto you with absolute certainty that the God of heaven will give you into my hands today and I will take your head from your body. David's confidence was impressive, wasn't it? David's encouragement, his resiliency was amazing. We notice that at this point, the battle ensued. David took one stone from his pouch, hurled it in his sling, and let it go at the proper time, being the skilled marksman that he was, and he failed Goliath in one shot. At that point, hastening to his body, he removed Goliath's own sword and beheaded him. Goliath the champion was dead. David, the young boy from Israel, was victorious. We notice that in the verses that follow, no wonder Saul and the rest of Israel began to have some questions. Who is this youth? Whose son is he? Where did he come from? He has been our victor. The Philistines fled after their champion was dead, and the children of Israel spoiled it, that is to say, took many of the things that were in their camp. And as the chapter closes, we find David a hero and we find Saul with many questions. Chapter 18 will take up there, and we shall do that in two weeks. For now, what have we seen concerning some of the features of these two chapters? To select a few of the things, we might well begin as follows. Might we at least give some thought to some of those words in chapter 16, to that evil spirit that troubled Saul. We noted earlier in passing that though at one time Saul was an individual who enjoyed the opportunity of prophecy, Samuel had even foretold that he would prophesy with the prophets, and that he did in chapter 10. But in chapter 16, verse 14, the Spirit of God departed from him, and an evil spirit from God troubled him. It is significant that this evil spirit was from God. It wasn't accidental. It wasn't happenstance. As you and I give thoughts to what this troubling or distressing spirit was, maybe it points us in the following direction. It certainly appears to have been something that led to intermittent behavior on the part of Saul. That is to say, it didn't trouble him all the time. But every now and then, this particular spirit would trouble or bother him, and it would almost lead to an element of madness. From what we learn later in the book, it seems bordering almost on the verge of insanity for these periods. We do learn, though, that this music from the harp could soothe it, or at least ease it, as we give thought to the nature of it. Notice again, God's rejection of Saul has led to this. It wasn't merely something like epilepsy. Although its symptoms might have at least resembled it, this was a sentence from the God of heaven in judgment upon Saul for his disobedience and upon Saul for his failures in light of the blessings that he had been given. When you and I think about an application of that, notice again the language. 
that just as surely as that evil spirit was upon him, how sad it is to think about this one who had distanced himself from God so much. At least in parallel today, isn't it always the case that a distance from God will make one distressed? It will always make one not physically ill per se, but troubled in spirit. How often does the Bible remind us of the tranquility and the serenity that you and I can enjoy as children of the God of heaven? As those who can pillow their head at night, resting assured that the God of heaven is with us and for us. A few verses might read like follow, as follows. In Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6, we are told, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. That reminds us of that powerful promise the Lord spoke to the apostles in Matthew 28, verse number 20. As the Lord issued that which we call the Great Commission, that they were to go everywhere, He couched it in language like this, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you all the way, even unto the end of the world. Thus, those apostles were reminded of the powerful presence of God with them and that they would be encouraged and supported by Him. In Psalm 56, verse number 11, we find that ease of which David was able to speak on that occasion. He said, I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Why? Because the God of heaven is with me. Isn't that an amazing statement? As we shall learn later in this book, David was often in fear of his life. Saul wanted to kill him. We find that even his own son at one point turned against him. We appreciate that there were others who were, of course, on the side of Saul who were always out to find David, to remove him from office, to take his life. David often found himself in fearful conditions, but yet he was able to say, I laid me down and slept. Why? Because the Lord sustained me. Psalm 3 verse 5. David knew the protective presence of God and the lovely features that that was able to provide him in terms of ease and soothing spirit. Doesn't it highlight for us what you and I can know today? In the midst of what so often seems distressing, be it the economy or otherwise, be it terrorists and whatever they may choose to do, we nonetheless can appreciate with Paul that we've placed our considerations into the hand of the one who can safeguard it so well. 2 Timothy 1 verse number 12. No wonder as Paul approached the end of that last epistle of which the Holy Spirit has recorded for us. In 2 Timothy 4, he was then able to say, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge hath given me, and not to me only, but unto all of them also that love is appearing. That kind of confidence can be yours and mine as well. And how soothing that is to our spirits, isn't it? Not only can we think about that evil spirit, though, another lesson might be the very one from which the lesson text was drawn. That text in 1 Samuel 16, verse number 7. Isn't it still an impressive thing to remember that Samuel thought surely that Eliab was the one of choice? Surely he was the one to be anointed as the next king. 
But yet God had to remind him, Him I have refused. And is it the language so very telling? For the Lord looketh on the heart, whereas man looketh on the outward appearance. Isn't it so often the case that the human family can be so quick to draw its conclusions? This person looks so noble. That one looks so incapable. When all the while, all we are able to do is to draw a conclusion so often based on such limited evidence. We see a person once and perhaps on first impression, we conclude often far more than what the evidence would warrant us concluding. Isn't it amazing that it's God still that looks on the heart? There have been many times in my life, and I'm sure the same is true of you, that statements and conclusions and perceptions concerning a person turned out to be incorrect. And all the while, maybe it was again based on such limited evidence. There are times individuals at work or other places have given the impression over a period of time of being upright, trustworthy, reliable, and capable. But then the time came when their true colors became known. They showed themselves to be deceitful. They showed themselves to be those that, have, that had ulterior motives. They were out to get something. And once they got it, they turned and changed. All the while, you see, I was deceived. I read them for what I thought the case was, and I'm sure the same is true for you. The Lord looketh on the heart. God is not deceived in that regard. A person might give the impression of being the most upright, Christianly, noble individual there is, and yet his heart could be filled with canker. He could be filled with unrighteousness. His motives may be far more than impure. No wonder we're reminded in Philippians 4.8 that those who truly are of a godly disposition, they think on things that are true and honest and just and pure and lovely, and of good report. We can be so thankful that God is a far better judge than we are because He looks on the heart. He knows every thought in your heart and mine. He knows every intent. He knows every reason why things are done. You and I might fool other people, but we can't fool God. But in this world, we can behave in such a way that others might pat our back and encourage us as being the best that there is. When all the while on the inside, we may be so far short that it's really regrettable. I wonder what the day of judgment shall bring forth. I'm persuaded that based on some of the statements of the New Testament, there shall be some tremendous shocking revelations that day. There will be those who attended the church of Christ. They gave the appearance of being associated with those that were those headed for heaven. But on that day, the true colors of the heart will become known and many who perhaps were appreciated as noble here will be found ennoble there. In Luke 12 verse 2, isn't it there said that there shall be no secrets that day? Everything will be made known. What we have concealed and hidden here will be made absolutely public there. And what we have in fact proceeded in such a way to secretive nature here will be no secret there. Doesn't that highlight for us how needful it is to be forthright and honest as we are because we cannot fool God. The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good, reads Proverbs 15.3. 
And we are absolutely reminded in Ezekiel 18.20 that the soul that sinneth, it shall surely die. The Son shall not bear the iniquity of the Father, neither shall the Father bear the iniquity of the Son. But the righteousness of the righteous shall be on Him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon Him. It is with those thoughts in mind, we're reminded here of some of those impressions that we read of in Acts chapter 1. When the time came for the selection of the replacement of Judas, we recall that Matthias was the one selected, and in terms of his presentation... As they cast the lots, they prayed unto God and stated, Thou, Lord, knoweth the heart. It's still the God of heaven that searches the heart. He might well be called the heart searcher. Perhaps in the language of Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, we read, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my spirit and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Isn't that a marvelous plea for God that you and I might desire to be as pure as at all possible because we know that He knows the truth. That brings us to our final lesson of the evening. The cause of God. As you and I give thought to God's cause, might I invite you to focus with me for at least a few moments on the 17th chapter of 1 Samuel. That still is a record that's so well known. David fighting Goliath. And David wins. We each today often find it joyful to root for the underdog. We like to see them when they're able to pull together and play in the way that we know they can and defeat a power or a team that supposedly is so much better than they. May we never forget this was perhaps the mismatch of all the ages. David versus Goliath. And David won. May I submit to you that the cause of God was the reason David won. It wasn't in David's physical prowess. It wasn't in David's internal strength. It wasn't in his military strategy. He won because he was on the Lord's side. The cause of God is that powerful and that potent, isn't it? In fact, it might well be stated that in this chapter, David was not afraid of Goliath. But he was afraid of God. And that was the reason that prompted him to act in the way he did. Where did David get the courage and the confidence to go out on that battlefield? None of the other warriors in Israel had that confidence. Even Saul lacked it. But David had it. Throughout this chapter, there's not the slightest hint of hesitancy, not the slightest hint of doubt, not the slightest hint of any questioning as to what would happen. David knew from the first time we see him, this man has defied the armies of God. He must be pay for that punishment, and he must pay for that choice. David was afraid of the God of heaven, and because of that, he knew that Goliath would be defeated. God was on his side. Doesn't it remind us of that text in Romans 8.31, If God be for us, who can be against us? Although things may look bleak and although things at times may look as though doubt and question and despair may reign supreme, we nonetheless know just as surely as God's cause was victorious there, it will be victorious with us. How strongly we must remain on the Lord's side. In those verses that proceed in chapter 17, as you and I consider the confidence that David had, I wonder how confident are you and I 
Are we sometimes more unconfident than we are confident? Are we sometimes more questioning than we are in terms of what we ought to be? God has given us a spirit of certainty, not a spirit of timidity and doubt. 2 Timothy 1 verse 7. Didn't Paul on that occasion say, God has not given us a spirit of fear. He has not given us a spirit of doubt, but rather He has provided us the capability of being those servants of His who are certain of His presence with us and who are certain of our eternal destiny when we're on His side. I think all of us are drawn to David in part because of that kind of attitude. We know later he'll have his issues and problems and he'll commit his sins. But when we appreciate the kind of internal confidence that he had and his conviction in the truth of the God of heaven, how certain ought we to be of the same? Just as surely as he knew that God's cause would be victorious then, ought not we be reminded that we are the Israel of God today? Galatians 6 verse 16. And if God's Israel was victorious then, shall it not be so now? Shall not His church be the one that's ushered into eternal glory? Ephesians 5.23 still tells us that He is the Savior of the body, and His body is the church. Colossians 1.18 That thus means you and I are the saved. We ought not be ashamed of that fact, and we ought not to compromise that truth. But rather, we ought to in fact live as if we set before others the example of that presentation of, of the Scriptures and to appreciate that we too can recognize that just as confident as David was, we too can rest assured in that same confidence. That gives us a life that's positive, not negative. A life that looks forward, not backward, Philippians 3 verses 8 and 9. And it gives us a life that is based upon the eternal foundation of what is absolutely unshakable. The Word of God, Matthew 24, 35. Those reasons help us close this lesson tonight. Looking at the powerful reality of David's victory over Goliath. You and I can be victorious over sin. Not because we do it ourselves, but because, of course, Christ through us accomplishes that. It is His power, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. It is His blood, Hebrews 9, 22. It is the sacrifice He made for us, Hebrews 10, 14. This very night as you and I examine ourselves, closing this lesson and remembering that evil spirit did come upon Saul because he rejected God. There was the fact that God looked on the heart, whereas man looks only on the outward appearance so often. And finally, we've seen that David's victory over Goliath reminds us of the absolute triumph of the cause of God. Our sufficiency is not of ourselves, 2 Corinthians 3, 5. Why is that, Paul? Because of the victory set forth in 2 Corinthians 2, 14. We are always led in triumph in Christ. Are you triumph tonight? Are you a person who has known the victory over the devil, over Satan, over sin? If not, you've never come to the Master perhaps initially at this point in your life. Why not make tonight the night? that you allow yourself to become a member of the body of Christ. I don't have the power to do that. The eldership here can't either. But Jesus can. He adds you to the body upon your obedience to His commandments. Acts 2.47 You need to believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. 
upon that belief, repent of your sins, commanded in Acts 2.38. Understand the needfulness of confessing the name of Christ. And in the words of that confession exemplified in Acts 8.37, you're prepared to be immersed, baptized for the remission of your sins. That could be accomplished in just a few moments. If you have begun that walk with Him at some former day, but at least at this moment tonight, you realize that things are amiss. Things are not right. You're troubled from within because things with you and your God are not well. Tonight, why not come back to your first love? Understand that He died for you at the cross and that He still wants you to be a member of, the, of His kingdom. He beseeches you, He implores you, He begs you, but He will not force you. He lets you make that decision. But tonight, if you have been touched by the thoughts in the book of 1 Samuel, by the words of the songs that we've sung, or by the prayers, or other matters, if you've been touched in a way that you'd like to make a public response, we'd be happy to pray upon your behalf tonight. If we could do that, we would only ask if we, our needfulness might be expressed as you would let us know that while together we stand and while we sing.